those of you in the second service are not getting to experience what uh, those of us who went to first did with about 140 other people that were normally not here, that were here this morning. It was a great blessing. I was around for almost none of the weekend for PYPA, but those who participated, I'm sure, did a fantastic job because all I heard from people for the last hour was, man, your church did a great job of hosting us. Man, they did a fantastic job of giving them themselves. Things were so set up better than we've ever had before. There's no church that gives themselves to this effort like you guys do. And so I was really pleased to know that that uh, those who were working so hard to set up the weekend did such a great job. All the kids seemed to be thrilled with the event. We had six girls stay at our house. They seemed to be thrilled with the event. It was all really good. So thank you to Jonathan. Thank you to Hope. And, uh, and certainly, most of all, thank you to Dustin for doing such a great job of preparing the weekend. And then all of those volunteers who helped out as well. It just sounded like it was a fantastic time. And I think the kingdom was, uh, was blessed through what went on in the last couple of days here. So thank you very much. Many of you know that uh, I had a relatively difficult summer, especially at the end. The last half of my summer was pretty hard. And I've talked a little bit about the fact that, uh, you know, I had a nephew who uh, passed away. I went and did his funeral, uh, and there were lots of family members there that I had not seen in years and years and years. And at one point, uh, there were two things actually that happened during the course of, of my time down there that were quite interesting to me. One was that at one point, right after the funeral, which was in a city park, I watched the, the uncle of, the, of my nephew who was killed. I, it was a great nephew of mine, and so his, his uncle is actually a nephew of mine. And I watched my nephew walking away from me through the park. And normally that wouldn't be a big deal, except that it was the first time in 40 years that I had seen that walk. And that's because that walk and that body walking away from me, I think my nephew's 38, 37, 38 or so, that walk and that body walking away from me was my dad's. And I hadn't seen it in 40 years but I watched him walk away, and I hadn't ever thought about it before or noticed it before. I just was, I, I, I was sitting in a chair, and I looked up, and I watched Cody walking away from me, and I thought, oh, that's Dad walking away from me. I can see it. It's his body. It's, it's his physique, and it's his walk. And I, I, just, I was just blown away. And I went and told Cody that later. I said, you're not going to believe that. I said, I know you didn't know your grandfather. You never met him. You never saw him. But I'm telling you, you've got his body. And you have his walk. He's just like you. It was, it was just incredible. The other thing that happened was that a few days, actually, after I got back home, my sister, and I've told you about my family before, um, this was Cody's mother, uh, the grandmother of the boy who died, um, my sister Sandy, and she's had many, many struggles in life. She texted me a photograph of, and I, and I can't even remember where she got this. I, I do have this same photograph uh, in a box at home, but uh, she, she texted me a photograph of my grandfather and my grandmother on their wedding day. And the same kind of thing, when I saw the picture, and I hadn't looked at this picture in years, but when I saw this picture on my phone, I, I thought to myself, there it is again. Like it's the same body. 
And of course, it's a still photograph. I'm not watching him walk, but I'm going to guess it's something similar. And so in just a, a couple of days there, I had the experience of seeing my grandfather's photograph, and I watched my nephew walk, but what I really saw was my dad, because it was all the same. Now, it's interesting because I don't, ha- I, I don't look like they do. Like, I don't have the same physique as my father. I don't have the same physique as my grandfather or my nephew. Um, I have some features. Every, every time I look at my hands, like I'll be doing something, and I'll, you know, I'll be working in the garage or doing something, I'll look at my hands, and I think, oh, those are dad's hands. And, of course, as I get older, they look more and more like dad's hands, you know. Um, it's just it's an interesting experience that we have that we can be so much like that from generation to generation. And those things might seem a bit superficial in one way, but of course they aren't in another way superficial at all. And so even though my nephew has never never met my my dad, never met his grandfather, it was just incredible the similarities that were there. And I never met my grandfather. But I'm sure there are things about him that are the same uh, with me. I, I do have to admit that when I looked at his picture, my grandfather, I did think to myself, he looks a bit like me. Like there's certainly some facial features, even if not the rest of the physique. Well, I'm going to get back to all of that. But I want, what I want you to do right now is just read some texts on the screen. I'm going to flip through real quick and read some texts from the Bible. And these all have to do with where we're headed today with our neglected treasure which has to do with God's steadfast love. His, in the Hebrew, the word's chesed. And the notion is steadfast, enduring love held for us by God. And it's interesting. We, like, in one sense, the love of God is not at all a neglected treasure. We talk about this all the time. But we don't talk about it quite so much from the Hebrew experience, from the Old Testament. And what I want to say this morning is that the God that was there in Jesus was there in the Hebrews first, and for the Hebrews first, loving His people always. Look at these texts. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has any grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then look at this italicized sentence. And over all these virtues, and when he says that, he's clearly saying preeminently, like above all the rest, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So we talk about love as being such a central feature of the Christian faith, and here is certainly a statement made by the Apostle Paul about the centrality of this element among us, something that binds everything that we are together, he says, in perfect unity. Watch this one. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 5. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there at Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And again, the italicized, and these are my italics, by the way. They're not in the Bible. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And I want you to notice, again, the way that love acts as the focal point. 
Like, that's the goal of this. In this case, don't teach false doctrines. And you wouldn't think that the goal of not teaching false doctrines would be love. You'd think the goal of not teaching false doctrines would be something like doctrinal purity. But he doesn't say that. He says the goal of all of this is that we might love. And so love, again, functions as this preeminent kind of virtue within the Christian system. Matthew chapter 22, this one's way more familiar to us, perhaps. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, which is fascinating because when I think of all the law and all the prophets, I don't normally first think of love. Do you? Like when you think of Leviticus, do you think to yourself, Leviticus is all about love? Normally we don't. But this is what Jesus says that all the law and the prophets ultimately come down to this, that it has to do with love. And, of course, this notion of loving your neighbor as yourself, all of that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is right around the Shema. The Lord your God, He's one. And then it talks very quickly about the love that we are to have for one another. Right out of, in fact, the Old Testament. Look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. You know this quite well. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, he says, is love. The New Testament just keeps taking us there. What's the preeminent virtue? It has to do with love. John 3, 13, 35. By this... Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you are loving one another. There's lots of things that we can do. We can serve others. We can bless others. We can give to others. We can treat each other in in unifying kinds of ways. But the the thing that's, that's preeminent here, the thing that the disciples are going to be known for Jesus himself says, is love. And so this is not just any virtue. This is certainly a preeminent kind of virtue, something that God wants to be within us all. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, in fact, but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries... And all knowledge. If I'm the wisest, most brilliant, most knowledgeable person there is, if I know all the scriptures backwards and forwards, if I understand everything there is to know about our natural world, if I have a faith that can move mountains and don't have love, I am nothing. Nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but don't have love, I gain nothing, Paul says. Well, I want to bring together what I want to say about fathers 
or what I said about fathers and heritage and all of that, passing on traits and characteristics. I want to go into something having to do with all of that now in relationship to love. And so I'm going to try and find our artifact. And it, I think I can, but now that I'm 60, you never know if I can even get out of here. Oh, here it is. Look at this. Boy, to stand, to stand the test of time, this must have been made of something, something really uh, worthy and valuable. And it's nothing more than a heart that we've discovered in the sands of our archaeological dig. Somebody a long time ago must have thought that the heart represented something. Certainly in our culture, when we put a heart up, we say that that has to do with love. And I, I can do that with my, my hands, and we know what that means. You put a heart on a bumper sticker, and people say, oh, I heart this. But of course, it's not I heart this, it's that I love this. And that's become a symbol of this notion of love, which is so near and dear to our hearts. So we have a neglected treasure in this sense, one that comes out of our archaeological dig, one that comes from the Old Testament, and which in fact was important for them, I think, as it is for us. Like no matter what we think of them religiously, wouldn't you think that for the average Jewish mother, that she was as in love with her Jewish son or her Jewish daughter as we would be? Wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think that the average grandfather within Judaism would be as much in love with his grandson or his granddaughter as we would be, as I am? And the answer is, of course. And so love was central for them. It may be that there aren't as many places in the Old Testament where love just comes right to the surface and is plainly the core issue in the Old Testament. That may be the case, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't. One of the professors I had at Abilene Christian University was Thomas Albright. Tom's actually been here and spoke for us several years ago. And I remember he wrote a book called He Loves Forever. He Loves Forever. That was the title of his book. And when he sent it off to the publisher, they didn't really know what to do with it because he was trying to say that the center of the theology of the Old Testament was he loves forever because that's what the book's about. It's actually a book about the Old Testament and the center of Old Testament life. And he said it was he loves forever. And they kind of challenged him on this, pushed him a little bit. What do you mean it's he loves forever? Where are you getting this notion? Tom said, read the book. And the book was all about this loving, caring, nurturing God who's identified, even in the Old Testament, with the notion of love. Now, we know in the New Testament He's identified with love. We love because He first loved us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son 
Because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And so God is extremely loving. He's not just asking us to be loving ourselves, but he's loving himself. And then in the Old Testament, we see the same kind of thing. And I want you to look at this. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. We sang this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So we sang it in two different songs this morning. What was the setting for this? What was going on when this was written? What's the book of Lamentations about? Somebody here is going to be able to tell me. What's the book of Lamentations about? It's about lamentations. It's about laments. But what was going on? Do you remember? They weren't listening to Jeremiah. Well, that's true. They weren't listening to Jeremiah. The people were not. The prophet Jeremiah was on the scene. What was he talking to them about? Do you remember? That they were going to go into exile. And in fact, the book of Lamentations is about Jeremiah experiencing some of that destruction. He looks around the city of Jerusalem, and they're about to go into exile, and the city is being destroyed. And Jeremiah is totally, um, he himself is destroyed in spirit because of what's going on within his country and his city and to his people. And so he's lamenting this. He's grieving this. When everything is horrible and everything is being destroyed around you and it looks like there's just no hope. And then he says, but to this I look. In this I find hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and His mercies never come to an end, and they are new every morning, because He is faithful. And so it looks like there's no reason to hope, but what does Jeremiah hope in? He hopes ultimately in the love of God for His people. And Tom Albright said, that's the heart of things. That's who he is. And he was no different then as the city of Jerusalem is being destroyed as he was when he sent Jesus to die on a cross. It's the same God with the same love for his people, a steadfast and merciful, loving Father. Now, I want you to do something for me. Turn to Psalm 136. It's on page 443 in the Bibles that are underneath your seats. We're not going to read this whole thing. But I find this a remarkable psalm. Psalm 136. One of the things I love about the psalms is the way that the writers, David and the others, so often had a window into God's heart. They were seeking after God, like in Psalm 42, like a deer panting after the presence of the Lord. We've talked about this recently. There's just such a, a craving for God on the part of the psalmists. 
and such a window into his heart and who he is. And here it says in Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then there's this line that comes immediately after it. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. And you almost can hear it say, why? Why give thanks to the God of gods? Because his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens. And he's incredible in that God is the one who shaped all of our existence. He made the universe. He's the one who brought it into existence. But what really stands out is that his love endures forever. He spread the earth upon the waters. His love endures forever. He made the great lights. He made the heavens. He made the stars. He put them in place. But what's incredible is that his love endures forever. The sun governs the day and his love endures forever. The moon and the stars to govern the night. His love endures forever. Like the moon that will shine forever it seems and the sun too that shines forever it seems and on whom we are so dependent for its warmth and its sustenance. It's his love that endures forever on which we really are dependent. And we could go through the rest of the psalm. It's amazing to me that with all the wonderful things that the psalmist wants to list about God, that what he keeps repeating is that it's God's love that endures forever. Another part of my stay in Oregon, you, you've heard this I know already, was uh, some experiences that I had with my niece, who was the mother of, the, of my great-nephew who died. And this is Cody's sister. She's a heroin addict. And I've been trying from a distance to communicate with her. She and I text back and forth. She pulls no punches. She'll tell me, I'm a heroin addict. And I don't know where to turn. I don't know how to get out of this. And so my conversations with her so far are not working. And I, and I have to tell you, I'm not sure what to do. I'm so far away, and I've been so removed from her life for so long. And I just don't know if I can even provide what she needs to get off of this. I mean, what she needs ultimately is the love of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to really show her. I just don't, I don't know. I don't know if I can. One thing I wonder about is that given my sister's life, who is her mother, and all that Lindsay experienced, part of me wonders if what she needs more than anything else is someone in her life, someone around her who communicates to her all the time simply the fact that she's loved. Like what I think my niece needs more than anything at least as much as she needs just freedom from this drug, is the opportunity to be loved. I think she just wants to know that there is somebody on the face of this earth who really, really does love her. 
And it's the only thing I can think of that ultimately is going to make the difference in her that needs to be made. And so when you're praying this week, I would love it if you would just pray for Lindsay and pray that someone would be in her life in such a way, whether it's me or somebody else, to show her just how much she's loved. I think she needs that so badly. Part of the reason I know that is, of course, because I need it. And you know how badly you need it. The other night in our life group, on Thursday night, here at the building, we were talking about these very things. Talking about chesed. And I asked the group, I said, is there anyone in your life that has loved you in such a way that because of their love, you have been impacted? That their love has shaped you and helped you and, and made you who you are. Maybe even brought you out of some place where you were. And Mike Davies, who's sitting right there, said, well, that's kind of easy. Because it's the way you guys have loved me. And I just fell to pieces. I don't know what was wrong with me. I just started crying, which I never do. And I couldn't, I couldn't really talk. I was just sitting there. And Mike got out of his seat, and he came over and gave me a comforting hug. And I thought to myself, this is exactly, exactly the way it's supposed to be. That we love each other. That we love others. That the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases comes into our lives at such a level that we end up looking like our Father. That we begin to resemble this one. And we walk like Him. Our physique is like Him. And of course, I don't mean literally our physique. But others should be able to see in us Him. You know, when I was typing this up, I started to type in, because I, I was kind of thinking about all of this and you know, overcome by just the love of God and thinking about how rich all of this is. And I started to type up so that I could make sure I said to you, I wanted to say, I'm so grateful for the love of God. And then as I started to type that, I thought, and that doesn't begin to touch it. Like I can't even say, I'm just grateful for the love of God, as if those words are in any way adequate to express my gratitude for the love of God. Words cannot begin to touch it. I remember a brother that I used to listen to pray all the time, and he would say, God, we want you to know how much we appreciate you. And every time he said that, I thought, are you kidding? Like, how can we use such low words for something so grand? Like, our words can't begin to touch or depict the love of God that he has for us. I can say I'm grateful, Lord, but it doesn't begin to touch it because the love of God has been poured out upon us in Christ Jesus. 
His spirit continues to fill us and go with us and walk with us. And so rather than say something like, oh, I'm so grateful, God, I just want to praise him. I just want to say, Lord, you're so wonderful and so grand and so great. And I love you too. Let's pray. God, you are so wonderful and so great. Your, your love abounds in ways that I can't begin to describe with my, my merely human words. And so listen to my heart, God, as I try to convey to you through feelings and maybe even groans that go too deep for words how much I love you. Oh God, thank you for loving me. In the name of Jesus, we come before you. Amen. Let's all stand, please. So if there's, if there's one thing that happens at a youth rally, it's that you've got 120 teenagers feeling awkward a lot. And watching them, especially the first night as they come together and they try to figure out who they know and who they don't know and how to look not awkward. Um, we, Glenn Davies and I were, or uh, Mike Coughlin and I were talking about how good it is to not be a teenager anymore. Um, all that to say, I don't have a problem making you feel awkward right now, and that that's what we're going to do. Because there's, there's something, Kelly, in your sermon about us looking like our father. And it's this, right? So Paul tells uh, Paul tells us to have the same attitude in us that Christ had, who, although he was in the very nature God, didn't consider his equality with God as something to be what? To be grasped, to be clung to. Jesus was willing to let go of his equality with God. But what is he not willing to let go of? us. Jesus clings to us. He grasps us. And that's what hesed is. So we're going to sing this song that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 6. So this, this is a song based on the Hebrew on hesed before agape. And the meaning is to cling to. So one time we sang this song and I said, I want you to turn in and sing this to each other and I said one thing and you understood another thing and all of the couples faced each other and sang this. That's not what I meant, but it was really cute. What I want us to do is to hold hands, all of us. Can we do that? And then I'll sing, I'll start each part, but we're going to have to, you're going to have to carry your own part. Um, and then we'll sing it one more time at the end. <clears throat>